If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5 this morning. Debated about doing something different than Mark, but um, we're sticking with it. So we're continuing on in our passage to the next section after we finish chapter 4 last week. Now we come to chapter 5. In the preface of his little book, Screwtape Letters, um, C.S. Lewis uh, writes um, a hypothetical correspondence between a senior demon and a junior demon. Uh, The senior demon is giving the, the junior demon instructions in the art of temptation. And so in that preface to that book, before he actually begins what this, this hypothetical um, correspondence, he writes uh, this in the preface. Just one second. Here we go. Uh, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil. One is to believe in their existence, the devils. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive let me re-say that. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe in, in them uh, in an excessive and have an unhealthy interest in them. So two, the two ditches that Lewis um, suggests about demons uh, that we must avoid is one is to dis, dis, a disbelief in the reality of demons, right? They, they, not, the spiritual forces don't exist. Uh, the other is to have an inordinate or unhealthy interest in demons. Uh, the first of the first, theolo- one theologian notes that, that the unbelief in Satan is often, has often proved to be the first step to the unbelief in God. Uh, Satan and his forces are absolutely real. But, but the more common uh, pitfall or error um, is, is the second, an, an overemphasis on demons. Uh, this is one when one may obsess or give undue credit to Satan and his forces. Uh, maybe they see everything as Satan is doing this, or the de- the devil is up to something. And uh, here's the reality: not all evil is a result of the devil. Um, your heart and my heart, the scriptures tell us, are desperately wicked. Um, we can get ourselves into trouble just fine, right? Sometimes we want to blame the devil for the things that, that our sinful heart is doing all on its own. So we ought to be careful about how much credit we give to, to the devil. Uh, on the other hand, as we said, the devil is certainly real. An excessive emphasis on demons and the theology of demons can lead to paranoia and unreasonable anxiety. Uh, Kent Hughes says, if Satan cannot push you down, that is down to unbelief, he will happily push you overboard to overemphasize on demons. Uh, The best way to guard against these errors is to get our theology of demons from the Bible. Not from society, not from Hollywood, not from your crazy next-door neighbor, uh, not even from your own perceived experiences. What, What we see or what we think we experience must be in alignment with the Bible. Uh, One writer summarizes a few biblical truths about demons in this way, that that demons are real, demons are fallen angels, they are powerful spiritual beings, they do possess people, they do inflict serious injury, 
they can resist. And today in our passage, we'll see them trying to resist even Jesus. But ultimately, demons do recognize and are subject to spiritual authority of Jesus. Matthew chapter 5 has a lot to teach us about demons, about Jesus, and about ourselves. As we enter into chapter 5, we enter into a new narrative. You may remember chapter 4 was a, a long chapter. It was a long day for Jesus, a lot of teaching, a lot of the parables, a lot of dealing with the scribes. And now we come to chapter 5, and they are finishing their, their trip across the sea. Right. So look at it in verse five, chapter 5, verse 1. And they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. So just as Jesus had promised, remember back in chapter 4, verse 35, Jesus says to his disciples, let's go across the sea. And that's exactly what they did. We noted this before, but what Jesus promises, Jesus does. If Jesus says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. We don't have to doubt it. So here we see him doing just as he said he would, and they come to the other side. They come to this, the country of the Gerasenes. It was a place where both Jews and Gentiles lived together. They inter, intermingled, so to speak. And that will become important in, in, in a few verses. Verse 2, And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Okay, so from, from, from one storm on the sea, now to another storm here on the shore. In the parallel account in Matthew chapter 5, some of you might be familiar that Matthew and Mark and, and um, Luke all kind of share some, some of the similar stories or the same stories, and sometimes they include some different details. And if you read Matthew's account, Matthew says that there's two demon-possessed men, and here Mark is talking about a demon-possessed man. And so those who are critical of the Bible might like to point that out and say, see, they can't even get their story right. Some eyewitness, one saw two, one saw one. What, what are we to make of that? Well, the, the likely answer is simply that Mark was emphasizing the one who was doing the talking. Likely that there could have been more than one. That's, that's fine. But Mark is talking about the one who was actually speaking. Also, Mark never overtly says that there's only one. He's saying, talking about the one who was speaking to him. Nevertheless, this man comes, and we learn that he has an unclean spirit. And we talked about this before, but an unclean spirit means that he has a demon. And verses 3 through 5 tells us about what that looked like for this man. Look at it with me, verse 3. And he lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had strength to subdue him. Day and night among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out, cutting himself with stones." Now, this is a horrific description of a man possessed by a demon. This is, this is terrible. Uh, this is hard even to, to even think what that might have been like. But the community they lived in had, had no answers, right? They tried to isolate him, and he, you know, that didn't really work. They tried to bind him, and his strength was such that he was breaking the chains. They had no answers. Society cannot fix these problems. Spiritual problems are fixed spiritually. They're not fixed any other way. One, uh, one writer says that he, talking about this demon-possessed man, roamed around like a, a lion in the jungle. Right? That, that's how wild this guy was. Uh, he was demon-possessed, or he was demonized, which means he was under the influence of demons. That's what, that's what that means. When we say he's demon-possessed, we mean that he's under the influence of a demon to varying degrees. Right? Not all cases of demon possession are like this. 
Satan doesn't always come in this form. He doesn't always do these exact things. This case clearly was extreme. How this man was demon-possessed, we don't know. It could have been because he was yielding to some sort of a sin, giving a foothold for Satan. Uh, We don't know that for certain, uh, but certainly he was possessed, uh, though we don't know the cause. What we can know is that Satan hates God. He, He hates the image of God. And you and I and this man are made in the image of God. And therefore, guess what? Satan hates you too. And he wants nothing more than to destroy the image of God. And that's what this, this is describing. It's describing Satan and his forces trying to destroy, defame, trying to defile the image of God. We hear that he, he was living in a graveyard among the tombs. Well, for a Jew, among the tombs, among dead bodies, that would defile them. Right? Satan uh, desired to defile the image of God. He was a deranged, depraved uh, man. His behavior um, was such that he needed to be removed from public life. So he was being exiled. Uh, he was harming himself, defacing himself, right, with stones even. Some see this as an attempt even to commit suicide in order to end his suffering. That the man just wanted to be done. So he's trying even to commit suicide, though clearly it failed. Satan and his demons are still at work today. Again, we don't want to attribute everything to Satan, and we ought not to. However, it is true that Satan is a destructive force, and he is in the world today. John chapter 10, verse 10 says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That's Satan. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. We must be on guard. Christians cannot be possessed, thank God. We are already possessed by the Spirit, but Satan still seeks to influence, oppress, distract, and to destroy. You know, sometimes Satan comes as a lion, as Peter talks about. Sometimes he comes as a serpent, as we see early in the Bible. But at other times, he is disguised as what 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14 says, as an angel of light. Satan comes in various forms and in various ways. It's true that Satan has great knowledge, but Jesus is all-knowing. It's true that Satan has great power, but Jesus is all-powerful. As we see in these next verses, Jesus conquering the demons. Look at verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from, uh, from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he, that's Jesus, was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirits. So imagine the scene, right? You get off the boat with Jesus. And all of a sudden... A crazy, wild, and in the other Gospels tells us an unclothed man comes running towards you. Now, if the disciples hadn't learned the lesson about faith and fear in the sea, they were going to learn it again here on the shore, right? As this man comes running towards them. And he falls down, which it it appears like falling down, kneeling down. This might be an act of worship, uh, but that's not actually what he was doing. What the demon was doing was acknowledging Jesus' authority. He was not worshiping Jesus. He was acknowledging his authority. Apparently, the demon uh, was resisting because verse, 
uh, verse 8 tells us that Jesus was saying, come out of the man. That's a continual statement. It's, he kept saying, come out of the man. And apparently the demon was resisting for a time. Verse 7, the demon uh, controlling the man's voice says, What have you do to do with me, Jesus, Son of God, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. So the demon uh, used Jesus' name here. But he was not using Jesus' name out of reverence. Uh, we saw this back in chapter 1, that there was this idea that if you use someone's name, uh, you can gain mastery or control over them as though you know them. And so we saw in chapter 1 that actually didn't work, right? Jesus cast out that demon. And so here we're going to see it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work uh, here either. Uh, but the request is um, for, for Jesus to, to, not, uh, to not torment them. We'll get to that in just a second. Um, the demon was also begging, yeah, he was begging um, th- these words, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. That's a, that's a strange thing for him to say, I adjure you by God. Like, why is he invoking God? What, one commentator uh, rephrases this or paraphrases this as saying, um, swear to God, you won't torment me. Right? That, that's kind of what, what, um, what the demon was trying to communicate to Jesus. Again, in the parallel accounts in Matthew, it says this, have you come here to torment us before the time? And in Luke, it says, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. See, the, the demons, not only did they recognize Jesus' authority, but they also recognize their end. They, also, they know. They know the end is coming. They know final judgment is coming. They know the abyss is the place that they, that they can be confined. Whatever their motives, we could say that demons have better theology than some men. Like they recognize things that the disciples weren't recognizing. They understood things about the end that we often neglect. Burke Parsons says this, even Satan is not an atheist. Even Satan knows this. He, he knows that God exists. He knows that the end is coming. They knew Jesus, these demons. They knew their end and they knew Jesus' power, which is going to be on display here in the next verses. Verse 9, Jesus asked him, what's your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, up to this point, if you look back in your, your, your Bible, it's using demon as a singular. And now here, he says, we're Legion, for we are many. Uh, a Legion was a, a unit of a Roman army, 6,000 foot soldiers and 120 horsemen and technical personnel. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of demons in one person. But this large number, even though large, they knew that Jesus had ultimate power. Verse, nine, verse 10, And they begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. Again, we, we need to note that, that the demons are asking for permission from Jesus. Satan and the demons are not running around just doing whatever they want to do. Jesus has ultimate authority. We look back to the book of Job and Job's inter- God's interaction with Satan. And Satan is coming before God asking for permission to, to test, to tempt. And only because Jesus and only because God is, ha- has, has a sovereign purpose in all the world 
is Satan allowed to do what he does? It's been said that God gives Satan enough rope to hang himself. Listen, what Satan is doing is not destroying God's plan. You look at, you look at the world, you look at evil, you say, man, is, what is happening? Is God losing? God is not losing. God is sovereign over evil. He's sovereign over demons. He's sovereign over all things, even the acts of Satan. But verse 13, Jesus does permit their request. Look at it. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Upon being cast out, right? Don't, don't miss that Jesus is the one telling them where to go. They're asking for permission, but it's Jesus who's sending. They are enter the pigs. And basically what we see is the herd of pigs committing suicide. Where, where a man had the volition to, to resist Satan to a point, here, pigs don't have that, right? No, no, no self-control. They, they go down uh, the, the cliff and commit suicide. What we know of Satan is that he is a murderer. Revelation chapter 9, verse 11, calls him Apollyon, destroyer. If Satan couldn't kill the man... He kills the pigs. He's, he's, he's a destruction. He, he just wants destruction. That is Satan. But as the pigs drowned, or in some Bibles say choked off in the, in the sea, what we understand is that the demons then would become disembodied. Now, no one's quite sure what happens to the demons. But, but one way of thinking is, some theologians suggest, that because they're disembodied, now the demons would be, um, would be committed to or confined to the abyss, waiting final judgment. The very thing that they asked Jesus not to do. So if you take that line of thinking, what we could conclude is that while Satan is playing checkers, Jesus is playing chess, right? That, that, that there is a greater plan going on here than even Satan understands. Satan and demons are not Jesus' equal. You know that? This is not some... Um, equal battlefield. It's not what's happening. Jesus is, is, has all authority. All authority. Authority over the waves, authority over man, authority over spiritual, the spiritual realm. We need to believe that. We can look at the world and be very afraid. But if we know who God is, and this passage is telling us something about God, then we can live with great confidence that God is in control. Well, all these events caused a bit of a stir. Look at it in verse 14. And the herdsmen fled and told, and told in the city and in the country. And it, uh, Let me try that again. And the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the, the, the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Right, so the people of the country of the Gazarenes Gazarines, uh, heard what Jesus had done. They came, in, came and they saw it, and what was their response? It was fear. They were afraid. 
And then what did they do? They begged Jesus to leave. There's a lot of begging going on here. Did you see that? The demons are begging. Now the people in the country are begging. If you have to beg someone, you don't have control. It's somebody else's control here. This is, again, emphasized over and over. Their response was not joy over, over this man's uh, deliverance. How, how happy would you be to see, to see someone delivered from a demon? How, how amazing would it be to see Jesus in your presence? Wouldn't that cause you to worship? Wouldn't you, that cause you to have, have gratitude for what he is doing? The problem was, is that Jesus was disrupting their way of life. He's disrupting their social environments. He's, he's even disrupting their economics. Pig farming was, was a big business. Here's, a herd, here's one herd, and there's 2,000 pigs. You know what that is? That's a lot of pork, right? Which brings us to a problem. If you know anything about Jew, Jews, pork is unclean. It's unclean to a Jew, to eat pork or to touch pork or to sell pork. And so what we might be seeing here, this is some conjecture, is that these Jews were compromised. Again, they were living in a place where Jews and Gentiles lived together. And Greek culture may have been infecting these Jews, getting them into a business that they had no business being in, in opposition to Jewish law and customs, which could explain why they didn't want Jesus around. You're messing with my life. You're getting in my, literally, in my business. You're affecting my money. What you're saying is affecting the way I live. Please leave. Leave me alone. I don't want it. We can see that the, these people valued what Jesus took more than they valued what he gave. Right? They, they valued their, their pigs more than the person. A Jesus who can heal the unhealable, a Jesus who can command demons, must have authority over all things. If you're a person who, who sees that, then you say, that means he has authority over me too. And the response is either we, we submit to that in obedience or we reject that in unbelief. Well, Jesus does not stay where he is unwanted. Look at verse 18. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. So here's this man, this man who has been healed of a legion of demons, delivered, rescued. This, this former demoniac was now delivered, clothed, Mark adds, and in his right mind, which means he's sane, he's sensible, he's sober-minded. He can actually think right for himself. What that is, is a, a radical change. It's a new creature. That is what Jesus does. That's exactly what Jesus does. He makes broken things beautiful. He, he makes the, the dead come to life. And let's just take a moment here just to say that if Jesus can deliver this man of his evil, of what oppressed him, of what had a hold on him. And guess what? If we argue from the greater to the lesser, then he can rescue you too. You might say, I have a besetting sin. It's not going away. Can God rescue from that? Yes, he can. You might say, well, God will ever forgive me. I can never come become a Christian because I've done X, Y, and Z. 
if he can deliver this man, he can deliver you. This is a good word for you and for me. No matter what evil has you, Jesus has the power to save. So this man, in great gratitude, clearly, desired to follow Jesus, which seems like the right response, right? What Jesus has done for, for, for us, now we want to we be with him. Like, Jesus, I, I want to I go with you, right? That's what, that's what this man is asking. But instead of agreeing with the man here, instead of saying what he said to all the other disciples, follow me, Jesus does something very, very different in verse 19. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Now, this is not what the man had asked for, right? This man was begging also. And if you look at the begging, the demons got what they thought they wanted, right? The, the people in the country got what they thought they wanted, right? But now here, this man is not getting what he thinks he wants. But in all three cases, God is doing what was best, God was giving to the demons what they thought they wanted in order for them to be destroyed. Right? For the people of, of this country, of, of that country, that they want him to leave. That's what they, they, they want. And yet the very thing they want would be their demise. And here this man wants to do something, but God has something else, has a better plan. God's plans are always better. Jesus told him that his mission field was not to be with Jesus, but to go home and to tell his friends. And though these people, though these people begged him to leave, Jesus does something else. He says, okay, I'll leave, but guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to leave you somebody who's going to tell you all about me. (laughs) I'll leave, but I'm keeping somebody here, and he's going to tell you all about what I have done. Jesus here commissions this man to testify or to proclaim about what he has done. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? To be God's witnesses, to tell what has happened to us? Listen, not everyone is called to leave their home to follow Jesus. Some are, but many are not called. In fact, some are called to, many are not called to leave. Some are called to obey the Lord by staying and serving where God put us. J.C. Ryle writes it this way, the place that Christians wish to be is not always the place which is best for their souls. The position that we would choose if we could have it our own way is not always that which Jesus would have them occupy. Now we've had three young people up here who are going out and praise God for that. And there are people who are called to go. And they should obey. And you should obey. But for some of us this morning, we should hear what Jesus is saying to this formerly demon-possessed man as a call to you and me that that we are to go across the street. We are to go to our friends, our circle of influence, to our family, to our co-workers, to our crazy neighbor, right? That, those are the people who we are to serve. Those are the people we're called to minister to. So how might you serve? How might you be called to go home and be a witness there? Well, let's conclude with verse 20. In being commissioned, the man obeyed right away, which is what obedience is. Delayed obedience is not obedience, parents, amen. Delayed obedience is not obedience. Obedience is doing what you're told when you're told to do it. (laughs) Verse 20, (laughs) and he went away, and he went away 
That's this is not talking about Jesus. It's talking about the man. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, that's the, 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 the surrounding area, the, the group of, of uh, towns or cities, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. He wanted to go with Jesus. Jesus had a better plan, and he listened. He obeyed. And that's a good word for us. Sometimes we think we know more. I think I'd like it to do it this way, Jesus. I think I'll do it a different way, Jesus. But here, this man, in humility, says, okay, you want me to say? I'll do that. And look at the fruit of what he did. He obeyed, and everyone marveled. I mean, can you imagine this guy rolling back into town? Can you imagine rolling back into your neighborhood? Can you imagine meeting his, his friends again? Maybe he was married. Maybe he had children. We don't know how long he was demon-possessed. Can you even imagine what this is like? This crazy man is now clearly sane. Unbelievable. The testimony would have been unbelievable. The transformation would have been obvious to all. That Jesus makes all things new again. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. The people were astonished. They, they were amazed at what they saw. That is what Jesus does. Jesus not only has authority over the storms that we saw in the end of chapter 4, but over the spirits here in chapter 5. He not only can deliver men from natural forces like the waves of the sea, he can also deliver from the spiritual forces like these demons. If Jesus has the authority over these things, the power over these things to give deliverance in those settings, then he has the power to deliver you and me. In fact, that's actually why he came. That's absolutely the reason that he came. We're getting a a glimpse of it here. But how much greater of a rescue, how much greater of a deliverance did Jesus give on the cross? Yes, this man was delivered from demons, but guess what you are delivered from? The greatest enemy. Your greatest enemy is not a demon. Your greatest enemy is death. And in Christ, we have been delivered from that. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came not to to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. It is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So then... If you have not been delivered, if you have yet to come to him, come to him today. Come to receive the the salvation and the healing and the deliverance that only he can give, and he can give it. There are those here this morning that can testify of the deliverance that they have received from Jesus, and you can know it too. For those who have been delivered, go. Go home and tell somebody. Go home and tell somebody how much Jesus has done for you, how he has shown you mercy. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. It's God withholding something that we do deserve. That's his wrath. You have been shown mercy. All of us have been shown mercy at the moment. Go home and tell someone. Who can you tell this week? Even as you sit in that chair in your car right now, who can you tell? Who needs to hear what Jesus has done for you? Go and tell. Let's pray. Father, we recognize this morning your 
uh, your greatness showed to us through your son, Jesus. And Father, in response to that, we want to worship you and we want to obey you. This man in Mark chapter 5 gives us an example of what it looks like to hear you and to obey. And so God, would you help us this week to hear you and obey? Father, if, there's, there's, if there are those here this morning who don't know you, I pray that they would come to see you as the Savior they need, as the rescuer they need, that they would see the love of the Father shown to them through the work of the Son. And they would repent and believe and receive the forgiveness that only you can give. Father, may you receive all the glory in our lives, even this week, as we go into our communities. We pray for your name to be high and lifted up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are the everlasting God.